So here we go. I want to pick up where we left off in Jeremiah chapter 29. So if you would, please join me in Jeremiah 29. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one, or if you don't have access to one via a smartphone, then we would love to put one into your hands. And so if you'll do me a favor, would you just raise your hand and hold it there? And one of our ushers will come and they will put a Bible into your hands. This is for us a tangible way in which we kind of fight the urge and tendency to be entertained and just kind of sit back and let someone else pontificate on the Bible. But instead, this is for us a tangible way in which we as a group of people corporately are shaped by and, and, and formed by and led by sitting under the exposition of the Bible. As you make your way to Jeremiah 29, my prayer this week and every week is the, the mystery that tends to happen is that when we open the Bible, the Bible tends to somehow open us. And when we begin to expose what's in it, the word we use is exposit what's in this text. It actually begins to expose that which is in us. So we pray for that and desire that and by some miraculous and mysterious means, God does that. So we want to read in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first 14 verses and walk through them together in the time that we have today. Beginning in verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconia and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. We spent last week examining the context of Jeremiah 29 and the gravity of that word that is recurring in this text, sent. That what was happening in the history of God's people at this particular time was not an accident, but in fact it was the doing of the Lord. God sent them. God put them into the difficult position that they were in. The Lord actually doesn't abandon those whom He loves, but He instead rebukes and He reproves and He disciplines those whom He loves. Such that those who begin to realize the weight and gravity of the consequences of their own sin humbly and miraculously begin to experience the mercy of God. And the entirety of this particular section is written to some people who were called to humble themselves and consider the possibility that the bad things that were happening to them were actually not that bad. That in fact they deserved far worse. We saw last week that this is, this is a, a radical thing to consider in our culture. Our, our culture teaches us that anything bad that happens to you is unfair. And it ought to be railed against and seen as injustice. And anything good that happens to you well, congratulations, you earned it. And anything bad that happens to someone else, well, certainly there's a reason, there's an explanation, there's a sense in which they deserve it. And anything good happens to somewhere, someone else, then what do we do? We're stirred with envy and a sense of entitlement, like, no, I should have gotten that good thing. And this is a radical thing that the people of God humbly consider. That in fact, we, because of our sin and rebellion against a perfect and holy God, deserve hell. We deserve to be cast out from Him. And yet now we have breath in our lungs. We have life. In fact, it says here, maybe even 70 years. What a blessing, right? If you and I see 70, there's a sense in which the, the, the aches and pains that, that hit us at 70 ought to be something we go... Thank God I made it this far. I made it here. What a blessing that I did not deserve. You and I deserve hell. Everything else is a gift. And so the context of this word to these people who were in exile was to consider the possibility that their own sin deserved punishment. And I would argue that beginning to consider the possibility that what you have is actually a gift greater than you deserve is the context in which understanding God's will for your life can flourish. In fact, if we don't begin to consider the possibility that the good things that we do have in our lives are gifts that we do not even deserve, then we'll never begin to understand the amazing gift of God's mercy to us. We see this in our culture. It's easy for Christians to say something like, Jesus loves you, but, but in fact, if you, if you think that you're awesome, well, then that's not really that great. In fact, it just makes sense. Remember, our culture believes that if anything good, happen, anything good happens to you, you, you kind of deserve it. You had it coming. So when, when Christians tell a countercultural statement, like God forgives you, He loves you, 
He wants to redeem you. He cherishes you. There's a sense in which our culture, without beginning, beginning to consider what it really deserves before a holy and just God, simply just pats itself on the back and says, of course he loves me. I'm awesome. Have you met me? But not so for the Christian. Such that when we begin to understand the weight and gravity of our own sinfulness, our helplessness to find joy for ourselves, when someone comes along and declares, as I am declaring to you, that God in fact loves you and has redeemed you in Christ Jesus, our only response is to do something else that's utterly countercultural. Unless you're in a soccer game, we sing, we rejoice. There's something in us that goes, How can this be? How can we explain that God in his infinite mercy would save a wretch like me? What amazing grace this must be. But this, this is what we celebrate. This is the context of Jeremiah 29. And we begin to open our eyes to this. We begin to see, I think, a sense of purpose. And I want to call us to this. Now, for those of you, maybe you aren't a believer, maybe you aren't a Christian, and you're in this room, I'm really glad you're here. I want you to know what you're about to experience. I want to open the Bible and compel you to see the possibility that God is real, that God loves you, that God in his mercy is drawing you to himself. You're not here by accident. And I want to spend the next little bit of time trying to prove that to you. But, but in a, some sense, we want to talk about what this looks like in the life of the church, we believe that the fulfillment of these promises happened for us in Jesus Christ. And the response to what God has done for us in Jesus is the local church. And the blueprint for what the people of God called by his mercy look like can be seen in seed form. And I want you to just kind of, if you're not a believer, I want you to sit back maybe as, a, as an eavesdropper and really consider, weigh this. See, see how well we do this. Begin to understand why Christians act so strangely and have convictions about things that seem rather odd. We see here over and over and over again that, that we are sent, that there's a sense in which people of God, called by his name for his purpose, are where they are for a reason. So last week, we began to kind of dig through some of the things that we, we I hope we'll kind of wrap up this week. We are then, according to this text, we are deserving of exile. We, we, don't, deserve, we don't deserve the things for which we often feel entitled, entitled. We are now sent by God. We saw this last week that you, in fact, have a divine purpose and a divine appointment. And for you to consider the possibility that God has brought you to this place even, to consider his goodness is evidence of this. And in the last three, we want to dig through this week. We are where we are for a reason. You are here in this building, in this zip code, for a purpose. You're here for a reason. We are to fruitfully multiply the image of God where we are. And we are called to patient, faithful presence where we are. So I, I want to begin, I hope, to show you that the mission of the church to multiply disciples of Jesus by the power of the gospel for the glory of his name amongst the nations can be seen in seed form in this prophecy. What I think you'll find is that the mission of making disciples that fruitfully multiply requires us to do at least three things. To live adequately and give extravagantly. To prepare to stay but willing to leave. And to engage in slow, lifelong, eternal endeavors. I'll walk through each of these as we kind of unfold what it looks like to be where we are for a purpose. To be not only where we are, but called to a purpose to faithfully multiply. And then lastly, I think you'll see here, we are called to this sense of patient 
long-suffering, this idea that God has got us here and it's not just for a season. It might be for something that's internal in nature. The book of Jeremiah from, from chapter 29 to chapter 31 paints a picture for the people of God who were in exile by the Babylonians of what it would look like when God begins to restore them. There's at least seven different things from beginning in chapter 29 to chapter 20 or 31 we see is that God will really restore the fortunes of the, nature, of the nation. We saw this. It's what it had, the thing that it had that, and it, that it possessed that was valuable was going to be restored according to verse, verse 14. We see this again in chapter 30. The second thing is that the city will be rebuilt. The palace will stand in its rightful place according to chapter 30 and 31. God will raise up another king that will be like David for them. Verse 9 of chapter 30 shows us this. Four things that God is going to do something that in which there will be an unending rejoicing. There will be an unending celebration according to chapter 31. The fifth thing, there will be a new covenant, a new agreement between God and his people. It will be unlike the covenant that God made with his people Israel at Mount Sinai, namely the covenant of God's law that if you will abide by this, you will look a certain way. There, there's a new covenant And this new covenant will be marked by the fact that there will be no more need for a teaching cast of priests. There will no longer be the people of God and the priests of God to mediate His presence to His people, but He will do something in this new covenant such that God will be equally accessible to all His people. There will be no need for a special place and a special role of priests because God in his unmitigated presence will make his people a kingdom of priests. Remember we saw this in the book of 1 Peter, the fulfillment of this in Christ. Six, there will be a definite forgiveness of their sins, a definitive mark of forgiveness that's never happened to them before. And lastly, the fulfillment of God's promise from the beginning, he will be their God and they will be his people. We see this in seed form in the commands that he gives. You saw here the setting is that they're in a, the worst possible place that you could imagine. Remember I told you the, the connection here you can find in, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet that existed in Babylon. And the Babylonians were genius at taking over cultures. They would take the most intelligent, most Im- most important, most influential, most skilled. Did you catch this? The, the list of people in the first four verses, they were taken out and deported such that a splitting and a chasm of the culture existed. And if you took the most important people out of the culture and drew them into the good graces, just like Daniel, remember D- Daniel was friends with King Darius and King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because the Babylonians were genius. They take the most influential people, make them look, talk, and think, and act like them, and send them back in to their own people so that instead of trying to lead a rebellion against the conquering king, they simply assimilate all the beliefs and practices of the king. You see this in the book of Daniel. God delivers Daniel and his friends through this. But that's the setting here. There, it couldn't possibly be any worse. We talked about this last week. There's a sense in which there's two bad things that happen. Uh, first and foremost is if you t- like it's, it's awful when you take if you took all the smart people all the educated people all the people that could read all the people that had a trade all the people that built things all the people that that made society function if you just pulled them out that would be devastating right but the worst thing would be left in your heart and mind is that you weren't one of those people 
all the smart people left, except you. And there's this sense in which we're, we're, meant, to, we're, we're meant to see here that God has a purpose, even, not even just maybe, but especially in that context, such that he gives them, thus says the Lord in verse 4, a command, a way to live, beginning in verse 5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. You see, some of these people were overwhelmed and crushed by what had happened. And the weight of life post-exile was as bad as they could imagine. And so they resolved to themselves that they were simply going to hide from all the things around them. They were going to sequester themselves. They were going to cut off the outside world. They were going to simply sit in their own mourning. They were going to wallow in their own fear and sorrow and separate themselves from the Babylonians. And to those people, to those people whose tendency was to abandon things, their tendency was to bail and to leave this word comes to us. Before I go any further, I want you to see the relevance of this text. They, their deepest, darkest tendency, their most natural inclination was to cut themselves off from people and separate themselves. To hide what they were really experiencing from the outside world and distance themselves. I don't know how this feels for you, but we live in what I would call an AWOL culture. Like at any given moment, the people you see in this room might fall off the face of the planet and you'll never hear from them again. I recently heard there's a term for this. If someone like texts you or you text them and they just don't respond, they ghost you, right? It's a thing. I apologize. There are some of you in this room I'm seeing right now, I've ghosted you, okay? But this, this is our culture, right? There's this sense in which like, it's just easier to disappear. How about instead of like facing my failures and our disappointment and the conflict in our relationship, how about we just like never see them again? What if I just pretended like I never knew them? Been here? Had someone do this to you? Had someone who distanced themselves from you? Or are you the one currently shutting people out? Friend, the good news of this text is as relevant for us in our own AWOL culture as it was for them to hide from, as they were hiding from the Babylonians. This is our tendency. Don't let anyone see what's really wrong. Believe the enemy's lie. Everyone else is happy but you. They're all rejoicing. You're the one that's messed up. Don't let anyone see it. This is the context where Jeremiah speaks a word of command. And he says, don't decrease. Did you catch that? Don't, don't hide. Don't, don't shrink away. But instead, multiply. So I think this calls us to at least a few different things. We saw last week that we're designed for this. But I think what you can also see is the remnant of something that starts in Genesis. You are designed to be finite, limited, and local. Now, let's go back all the way to the first temptation that existed with Adam and Eve in the garden that I think shows up here. 
and I think might have something for us. If we really are going to believe that God has called us here for a purpose, that God has put us here in this place, in this time, this moment, with a specific task, a mission, as the church would call it, then you've got to understand some of the tendencies that work against us. So, so one of the first tendencies that happen, and we always refer back to this so that we see the cyclical nature of sin. Like, if you're ever like, man, I can't believe I've just sinned. You'd be like, well, just read the Bible. It's kind of the story of people doing it over and over again. God continues to not give up on them, right? So the very first story, a snake, the, the deceiver, the enemy, comes to a woman and says, hey, if you'll do the one thing that God told you not to do, then you will be like God and you will know good from evil. Catch what the enemy tempted them to be. Instead of, instead of simply embracing their own limitedness, their creatureliness, their created nature, the sense of, of being a created being that we have limits, we have, God has actually imposed on us boundaries, they were tempted to throw off in order to be like God. They were tempted with the omnipotence, namely to do whatever they wanted, right? God said, don't do this, but they were like, are you kidding? Instead of being a finite and limited creature, I'm, I'm going to be omnipotent. I'm going to do whatever I want. You can't stop me. And they were tempted to be omnipotent. And the second thing they were tempted to be is omniscient, right? If you do this, you will be like God, knowing something. You'll know something that God knows that you currently do not know. And then there was the simple, I would argue, a rebellion against God to be omnipresent. And they become strikingly aware of it. And the first thing they do, the first reality, is they become aware of their nakedness and they do what? They hide. They try to distance themselves from God. So we are called to be finite, limited, and local. We are called to be where we are with a purpose. It is actually God's good order for us to have limits, boundaries, it is actually rebellion against God to think otherwise. You are not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. I know. Blown your mind, right? But you're not. You are not. You can't do anything. You can't be anyone. You can't be everywhere. These are tempting things to believe, right? Our culture doesn't teach us this, doesn't it? it can say, you can be whatever you want. You can be whatever you dream. In fact, whatever you do, follow your dreams. Be that thing. And the minute that anyone imposes on the outside a sense of limitation, who are our heroes? The ones who push back. And they impose their sense of self-will on everyone. Sense, sense this? You get this? The heroes in our culture at this moment are exalted because against the flow of culture they have imposed their own self-declared identity to anyone they're the heroes and yet it seems like here that the people called by god are are to be local people they're to have a specific locality and they are to embrace their limitedness so this is what this means for us you are not to repent of not being omnipotent omniscient and or omnipresent you are to repent that you, or for thinking that you even could be. Get the temptation to be omnipresent, all right? It's right here. 
You got one of these? Oh, it's addicting. There's a sense in which, with this, I can be in many places at once. With a couple of, with a couple of swipes, a couple of, I almost said clicks. I mean, what, I mean where are we? What are we, 1996? Come on. Like, <laughs> like, with a couple of different commands on this little device, and I can communicate with people around the globe. It's addicting, isn't it? It's powerful. There's a sense in which I can say something or do something, and I can cause people to respond to it who aren't here with us. They're somewhere else. I can, in many senses, be in many places at one time. Do you feel it? Do you feel that, that addiction? Do you feel that, like, that, that, that it's like an opiate? It's like it's so tempting. I can be more than just me. I, I, mean, I, I mean, sure, I could just hang out with you, but why would I want to do that? Why would I want to just interact with you? I've got the world at my fingertips. Who cares about your reaction? What? I could get one, two, three hundred likes from what I'm thinking right now. Get it? You feel it? If you don't believe me, ask yourself how it feels when someone being local and sitting right in front of you does this. Oh, yeah, hang on. Hang on, guys. Just a minute. Oh. Oh, yeah. Go on. Ever felt that way? Do you feel the addicting nature to be connected to all things in all places? Do you feel that rebellious tendency in us to be omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent? Can I push back on that for just a moment? If we're going to be obedient to what God's created and called us to be, we will have to first confess of our own desire to be more. We will have to repent. We won't have to repent of not being omnipotent, right? Isn't that what we usually do? We usually say, hey, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I couldn't do that. I, I, I'm sorry I didn't meet that command or meet, meet that demand. I'm sorry I told you I was going to do that thing. And would you forgive me? I, I, got, I got too busy. I had too many things on, on my plate, too many things on my schedule. And, and we basically repent of, of not being omnipotent. Have you ever seen this? Like, I'm sorry I had a bunch of stuff to do. That is a false repentance. That's a false apology. It's not real. Real repentance is repenting of believing you ever could. Uh, the way I invest, hopefully, in, in, in you people and some of the people close to me is you hear me say this on a regular basis, a leader, a real fruitful leader, an influencer is made not by what they say yes to, but by what they say no to. Most people hate that, and so they just act like they're saying yes to things until functionally they blow everyone off and say no to everyone. Procrastinate long enough, and the decision will be made for you. And you'll be left apologizing for all the things you committed to doing but had no ability to accomplish. Been there? We don't repent of, of not doing all of the good things. We repent of thinking that we could uh, this week, do you want to do all the cool things this week? Like, do, I mean, do you want to do all the awesome stuff this week? I mean all of it. Like all of the good things this week. You want to do it? Let's do it. Let's do all of them. All of them? All of them. Every single awesome thing that could possibly be done. Let's do it this week. Who doesn't want to do that? Who isn't tempted by that? You know what happens then. You can't. It's impossible. And I would point out to you that that's exactly how God created you to be. You aren't meant to repent of not being able to do everything. You're to repent of thinking that you could.
You're not to repent of the fact that you can't be everywhere all at once. You're to repent of your own desire to be that. This will radically change you because the calling here for God's people in Jeremiah 29 is for them to be a local people. Did you catch that? That Some of them wanted to, to distance themselves, but he says, no, be there. You are there. You, I put you there. And he even gave them, so look, this is probably going to last you 70 years. I'm going to give you a, an allotment. I'm going to give you a space, a time. This is what your circumstance will be. And yet in that space, in that time, in that moment, that's where you'll be fruitful. So the first thing I think we see here is that we are actually created with limits. And to rebel against them, well, if you haven't already felt the destruction in your own relationships from this tendency, well, then I want to tell you rebelling against them is on the way to abandoning all the things that God has created beautiful in you. You won't live forever. Living forever will destroy everything valuable. You can't be everywhere. You can't be all-powerful. You can't I know this will hurt some of you. You can't know it all. It's impossible. And we're not to repent of not knowing everything. We're to repent of ever thinking we did. And embrace this locality, this limitedness that God has programmed and wired into us. So here's what this means for us. This means that I think if, if God has sent us here and he's put us here and we, were, we are where we are for a reason, then I think that the way that we respond to this is that we are not tempted to leave, but we're open to the possibility that we're actually where we are for a reason. We're supposed to open our minds to the possibility that we are instead to be in a place at a particular time for a particular season with limits on it. Stop trying to be a superhero. Quit trying to impress everyone. You can dispense with the idea that you can be multifaceted, multi-talented, multitasking, loved by everyone. I think this begins to, to change the way we see our locality. And this is where I would land on this. If God's created us for a purpose in a time and a place, this is what this will look like for us. We prepare to stay, but we're willing to leave. Recognize the countercultural nature to this. The culture says, be ready to leave. Be prepared to go. But be willing, you know, willing to stay. Be on the way somewhere else. Be chasing the rainbow. Be chasing something else. But if that fails, tolerate where you are now. This is what this means for us relationally. This is what this means for us in our sense of purpose, it like if God's really put us here, then we're actually preparing to be here. This will hurt. This will sting. Because I know for many of you right now, you've got plans, you've got things you want to do, and they don't involve anything right here, right now, in this city, in this place. Because you're too good for it. You've got better things. You've got more important tasks. And the thing that God's laid out for you and the thing that God has mapped out and the thing that God has arranged to put you right where you are, right when you are, for the purpose that you have, well, frankly, you're better than that. And your plans are wiser. Friend, even for some of you, I know you're on the way out. You've already checked out. The minute you step into a particular circumstance, you're already searching for reasons to leave. 
You're looking for excuses to cut people out of your life. You're looking for a chance to run. Ask yourself this. How many friends do you have that have lasted through conflict? How many friends do you have that span more than the last decade? How many people have known you and loved you through all the times you've run and kicked them out of your life? Begin to see this. How about you prepare to stay and be willing to leave? How about we embrace this as a church, as a group of people who radically say we're here for this city. We're here locally in a limited manner, and it's actually not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. The second thing you see here is that if we embrace a locality, then, then actually it says we, we begin to bless and multiply. Did you catch that? It, so here's what I would argue for you. You, you will do one of two things. Um, you will either, I believe, take from your city or you will give to it. If you begin to embrace this, you will either take from your surroundings and your environment or you'll give to it. Did you catch that? It says, do not decrease but multiply there. Ultimately, when you look at where you are, and this, this applies on, on so many different con- concentric circles of influence, like whether you're thinking of your marriage, your, your friendships, your family, they either exist for you or you exist for them. You are either God in the center drawing in gravity things toward yourself or you are flowing with something in and through you to bless them. So if you really boil it down, some of you, you're in Sioux Falls, and, 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 and if, if you really were just to, to begin to measure your investments, what you give to you, what you think about, you could probably begin to see this, if you want to. You either think that this, exists, this city exists for your benefit, or you will begin to see that God has put you here for its benefit. And this will radically affect the way you react and interact with everyone. And don't get me wrong, there's some awesome things in our city, right? Have you been to Shields? Are you kidding? There there is a a Ferris wheel in a sporting goods store. It's that's like, I mean, this is what where are we? This is this is this is heaven. Like if you're a consumer, you're just like this, what what else do I need? Is there what there's there's guns, there's there's fishing equipment, there's oh what a Ferris wheel. I literally have everything I need. You've been there? So there's great things in our city. I don't know what it is for you. So there's a tendency, because our culture has built the city this way, to begin to think that it exists for our benefit, for our pleasure, for our comfort. And we want to use it to get as much as we can. But did you catch this? Well, this is radical. This will mess you up. What if God has actually sent you to the city for its benefit? This is what I pray we become. And this is what I pray that our church begins to look like. Oh, sure, we have kind of a limited sense of influence now. As a church, we've only been in existence for like two and a half years. Some of you I haven't even known near that long. And we have a limited influence now, but begin to wonder, what would it look like for Sioux Falls to actually be better because God has called us to exist here? Like, what if your family was actually better because God put you in it? What if your workplace wasn't something that was only to give you a paycheck What if it's a mission field to which God has called you to bless and multiply grace there? Doesn't that change the way you see your paycheck? Doesn't that change the way you see your task, your boss, your coworkers? 
If you're constantly on your way to somewhere else, then I would argue you're going to fall into one of two categories, and you'll find yourself thinking that everything around you exists for you. Here's why I just want to break this to you. This, this is, I love you, so I'm going to tell you this. If you ultimately, functionally believe that this all exists for you, this is what you're doing. You are sucking the life out of people. You are killing them. You are robbing them of emotional energy. They are dying on account of your selfishness. It's actually happening. Now, you won't know it because you're gone in six to 18 months anyway. And the trail of destruction behind you, the wake of your self-centeredness, oh, you'll be somewhere else thinking of something else and sucking the life out of someone else before you even begin to think about what you might have done behind you. Friends, we have been granted the gift of God's grace, undeservingly so, such that now we have an eternal joy overflowing out of us. A Christian shouldn't suck the life out of you. Apparently, if I read Jesus' words right, we're actually to be rivers of living water, fountains springing out to the people around us. Do you get this? This is the life that God has called us to. But if you're on your way to somewhere else, then you're never going to experience the joy that God gives where you are. God put you here for a reason. God put you where you are, and you are in this city for its sake. You can fight against this, but you know how this happens. This is a lonely and awful place to live. So how do we do that? It says that we multiply there. This means that we have to have something going on in and through us that's healthy enough to overflow into something else, right? So, so self-centered, the self-absorbed approach to life really just draws resources to you, and, and it's just like a black hole. But this seems to imply that because of God's calling and his purpose, the mercy that he's shown on these people, even though they deserve punishment, is is some sort of a life force. It's some sort of a blessing that overflows. This radically changes the way we see our lives. This means that, if I were to just kind of boil it down, this means that we live adequately and give extravagantly. Again, an utterly countercultural way to see things. The world tells you, shields most of all, says live extravagantly, but give eh, adequately, meagerly, sufficiently live extravagantly follow your dreams do not deny yourself any sort of pleasure go into massive amounts of debt to do this sign your life away to have that joy that comfort that sense of excitement now but that isn't the case for us is it and christians live radically don't they they live well within their means so that they can give beyond their means They'll deny themselves the creature comforts, the luxuries, in order to be obedient and bless the people and the places God has put them. Just a word of encouragement. You don't know them, but there's people in this church that can teach you a great deal about this. They're people that give extravagantly and generously, and it's not because they're wealthy. It's because they deny themselves comforts for the sake of sacrificially blessing others. There's people, if you want to know more about this, I would love to point you to some of the people in this room who are living this out. And they're being a blessing, not because they're wealthy, <laughs> in fact, quite the opposite, but instead because they think it's 
more blessing, it's more blessed to give than to receive. They think it's a blessing to be a blessing. This is happening. This, this, this radically approaches how we address money and time, doesn't it? Uh, this means that, like, so we, we want people, we want to help people out of bad financial circumstances, not just for their own good. Like, like the culture wants to alleviate poverty. Well, Jesus says that you'll always have the poor with you. So there's this really strange kind of balance in the sense that apparently God is doing something, in Jesus specifically, that's greater and, and more powerful than creature comfort. So this radically alters the way that Christians address things like poverty. Our goal is, is not to get you out of financial trouble just so that you'll live the American dream and shop at Shields, right? So our goal isn't that you would get out of those bad financial decisions so that you'll begin to live a posh and comfortable life. No, apparently, you're, you're meant to, and we're meant to call one another out of those bad decisions, bad situations, whether they're, whether they're our fault or they're inherited. Either way, we're meant to love and care for people outside of this to the point that the joy of Christ's reconciliation and transformation overflows into multiplication. This radically changes the way that Christians help people. We don't help them so that They'll feel better about themselves. We'll help them so that they will powerfully and mysteriously see the work of God to help. To help in such a way that God not only draws you out, but he makes you into something that you're not. I love what Andy read in the call to worship this morning, that like God's, God's great joy is to take stuff that's nothing and make it into something. His great joy, not, not to take things that are nothing and make it comfortable, but to, to make something nothing out of nothing and then just bless everybody with it. So that you're left like, how'd they do that? There was nothing to begin with. It must have been God and his gracious and generous nature. It's what God loves to do. This alters the way that we help one another. Alters the way we spend our money and our time. Treasure our talents. These are radical ways to see this. And then lastly, I think we're called to something that is a long and powerful process. Did you catch that? Multiplication. Multiply. That is, take one thing and make it into many things. Take one thing and by some factor, make it into exponentially more than it was when it began. Difference here between addition and multiplication. Addition is just simply the gathering of many things. A multiplication is the exponential growth of one thing or a few things into something that's immensely greater. It has a factor. Something's going on there. So this is what I think we see. If we're called to multiply in this city, brace yourselves for this one. This will be slow. This will take your whole life. Everyone will want you to go faster. And yet what God has called you and I to is a generation. This is why Jesus always uses metaphors that frustrate me. But like, he doesn't use metaphors that are quick. What does he do? He uses agrarian terms. He talks about planting seeds that grow for a season and are harvested at the end of the season. I hate that. I cannot, I like microwaves. Are you kidding? Give me a little bit of radiation, that's fine, but at least I don't have to wait for this food to cook. Am I wrong? And there's this sense in which Jesus comes along and he goes, you want food? 
drop a seed in the ground and wait and marvel at the slow and majestic thing that God does that you have no power over. You seen this? This is what God does. He's creating something in this culture. He's creating something inside the Babylonian exile that will multiply, that will begin to grow. This is, this is beautiful for us. This means that we're, we're called to something that will probably take a long time. Just use the, just use the ways that he, he said this. Look, what do you do? He's like, okay, build houses. That takes some work. I mean, remember, this is build houses without a Home Depot, Lowe's, right, or a Menards. This is like build houses. Go build houses in Babylon. Well, where do we get the stuff? I don't know. You figure it out. It's going to take some, take some time. It's going to take some work. Build houses. Make dwellings for yourself. Live in them. That is to put down roots. Now, the American dream says that all of you should take out a home loan and buy a house because you're like deficient as a human until you do. Because if you don't own property, you're not American. This is, this is what the American dream kind of tells you, okay? Here's what I'll tell you. Buy houses. Own property. Why? Because God's put you here for a reason. Be prepared to stay. And be willing to leave. Maybe God will call you elsewhere, but in the time being, God's put you here for a purpose. Stop squandering it. Start investing in it. Here's what I know. If you're sucking the life out of people, this is what I know for sure. It is impossible to make disciples of Jesus from people that you're exploiting. It's impossible. If you're sucking the life out of people, you're, it's impossible to share the gospel with them. If secretly you want their approval and you want something from them, you will use them, chew them up, spit them out when you're done. If they don't agree with you, you'll go AWOL, ghost them, distance yourself from them completely. It's impossible to make disciples. Be obedient to what God has called us to do in Jesus if you're exploiting people. But here's the funny thing. It's impossible to exploit people if by the power of the gospel you're making disciples. It's impossible. In fact, Man, I say this like with deep emotion that it, it calls something out of you to lay down your life. It calls you to think away from your own interests and consider the glory of God in Christ and you pour out your life accordingly. This is why Jesus says radical things. Like you gotta hate your own father, your own mother, your own children. Hate your own life. Otherwise what? You are not my disciple. It's impossible to make disciples while exploiting people, but it's also impossible, thank God, to exploit people if you're investing in them the truth of the gospel. It says multiply there. Be a blessing there. Build a life there. Bless them there. And then it says take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Like he runs a whole bunch of clauses there together. And if you just read it like that, you would think, well, oh, just like that. You're right, just get married. Or why hadn't I thought of that, right? Or like, oh, just, just have children. Oh, just like that. Okay, let me just get on that. You gotta, you gotta stop and slow down and realize the radical nature of this. And he, God is calling us to something that's grand and it will take time. It will take time. Now we see the Bible in different places exalts singleness to the level of angels. So it's not saying... If, if, you, if, you're, if you stay single, you won't be a part of this. But what it is saying is that single or married, we are a part of a corporate project. Getting people married, getting people to raise families that will multiply and not decrease, is a, it, it is a corporate project. It is a group project. It takes work. 
It takes things like encouragement, accountability. For us to do this will take a sense of slow and patient, I would even argue an eternal picture of our purpose. This means that we we radically alter the scorecard. I share this with guys all the time, um, just specifically because I can relate to guys on this, but like in our culture, guys, we high-five a guy who scores a touchdown. If I read this right, that's not that impressive. We should high-five the guy that gets married. It's a big deal. We don't, though, do we? Oh, where's so-and-so? Oh, he met a girl. He don't hang out with us no more because he's dating that one girl. You feel this? What does this tell us? This says we like, we re- like where's so-and-so? I don't know, man. He's, he's, Taking a wife, it's going to fruitfully multiply the image of God. Let's, let's hide. I mean, we're like, let's celebrate. It's going to be awesome. What if bachelor parties were no longer a celebration of laying aside like our sinful last hurrah? And what if bachelor parties were equipping men to multiply his image for the nations? Where would we celebrate such things? Who would we invite to crash that party? You get this? You get what God is calling us to do? It's beautiful, but it's going to take your whole life. It means that like this hard, weird thing that's been existing for only about 130 years called dating, that means we're going to have to love people and like help them navigate that because it's just not in the Bible. It's really tough. It's like, you know, be married, be single, but like the in-between part, it's, it's ugly. So in our culture especially, okay, take wives or just like that or let me just just like that that's that's that easy right I, I don't know what that really takes for you but that was that was a work that, like convincing my wife to like this was a big it was a work right it takes effort but it gives us a picture of what this ought to look it says take wives for your sons and give your daughters okay this is specifically important for us this means that christians ought to at least in some sense be like a compelling presence all right so there's a sense in which something ought to be overflowing out of us so that we are marketable people. There's a sense in which I can only apply this to myself, and you can run with it, but like this means that I've got to raise my daughters. I've got to raise my daughters, hopefully, as best I can, disciple them, and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will be the thing that draws a man to them. Because after all, charm is fleeting and beauty is vain, right? But what a woman who fears the Lord, that's worthy of praise. So this means fathers, mothers, that means we raise up daughters that have something in them that's more beautiful and substantive than just charm. They're not drawing attention to people by the shape of their body, but they're drawing attention to themselves by the magnificent image of God being born in them. That's a high bar, isn't it? Like, I, don't, I don't know what you were expecting of daughters, but th- this is what God's calling me to. Here's the second thing, though. It means that I can't do so in such a way that I, like, we can't hate Babylon, hate Sioux Falls so much that I raise my daughters to be off limits. That means that this is going to be a generous investment. I don't know about you, but when, when, like, when the pastor says, who gives this woman to be married to this man and it's going to be my daughter, I'm not going to be the pastor because I will just weep the whole way through. But like, when that pastor goes, who's going to give this woman to be bar- married to this man? I'm, no, I'm going to be letting go of my most prized possession. This is going to be something that will cost us our life. But don't decrease there. Multiply there. And when we do, something amazing will happen. When we do, something amazing will be created. 
we will have a faithful presence that will transform our city. Here's my dream as I pray for our city, as we're commanded to do. In the future, what would it look like for our city to be actually deficient if Connection Church disappeared? If we up and just disappeared, every single one of us, we're out of here, just gone, done. Would anyone notice? Would there be missing, would there be joy that's missing out? Would someone think, oh man, that life-giving presence of those people is now gone, what do I do? My prayer for our city, and if I think I read this right, a, a biblical call to obedience in our city is that we become an indispensable and beautiful presence in it. That we lay down our lives to multiply the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. There was another man, and he didn't deserve to be, but he was sent into exile. And instead of opposing them and destroying them, instead of hiding from them, he graciously bore their sins in their place. And even though he didn't deserve to be in exile, he embraced exile so that he would lead people out so that one day God would call his people back to himself. And thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, we don't call ourselves exiles anymore. We, by Jesus Christ, are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, go and live accordingly. Let's pray together as we wrap up for exactly that. God, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. Uh, we thank you that you have called us not to a meaningless and futile existence, but you have created and called and crafted us to a substantial impact for the sake of your glory. God, thank you so much that that you did not abandon us to exile, but you sent your son Jesus to be exiled amongst us so that when we look to him, we find hope. When we look to him, we find, even in the midst of terrible decisions, a, a terrible, terrible circumstances, environments that are a fruit of our own decisions, we find, we find a hope, we find a peace, we find a grace and a joy that we did not deserve. I thank you for this in Jesus. If there's some in this room that, Right now, they would describe their own lives as futile, as, as a waste. If they're just racked by resentment, if they're just strangled by regret, would you begin to show them that you have placed them here for a purpose? It's not an accident. That you have done something for us in Jesus. Allow us to look to his grace and find purpose, find healing. Let us cry out that we are limited. We are not omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, but we need, God, you to be on our behalf. For those of us that maybe we've just simply seen our surroundings as places where we exploit and suck the life out of people, God, I confess that often I think first of what I can get. Would you begin to change that in us, soften our hearts for this city, show us that you have loved and redeemed us for the sake of those who have never heard this good news. May we be 
missionaries and messengers that multiply love and grace in our families and our environments and in our city for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.